Please open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2. It can be found on the Pew Bibles in front of you on page 332. I am mindful that it was a year ago today that we stopped gathering. And what a gift it is to be back tonight to see many, many faces. What a joy to be back with you. Joshua is the story of God's people entering the promised land. In Joshua chapter 2, this nation sits to the east of the Jordan River. And they're about to get the word to engage. Certainly at that point, Joshua, this new leader, would be questioning himself. Certainly this nation of Israelites would be asking themselves, are we ready for this? Are we secure? Is the Lord going to be faithful to us in this endeavor? These questions are not unique to this nation, is it? These are questions that many of us are asking ourselves tonight. Lord, when I look at the circumstances that I'm in, that I know that others are in, are we safe and are we secure? The Lord answers that question tonight in this text that I'll read for us now. Joshua chapter 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here to try to spy the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they've come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went, but go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and had hidden them under stalks of flax. She laid them on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. As soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings, the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. 
So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she had lived in was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself there three days until they return, and then go on your way. The men said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding unless, when we enter the land, you have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if anyone goes outside of your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. We will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went to the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Let's pray. Our Father, you are our great rock of ages. And I pray that tonight, that we would once again feel the security of being hidden in your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. My brother Chris led quite an adventuresome life in his 20s, spending most of that decade in the uh, South Dakota on an Indian reservation. It was there on the reservation that many opportunities came his way that most of us have never experienced. On one phone call, he told me that he was headed down to Arizona to be in a fire crew team. Essentially what this team did is he said that they would trench the earth for miles to create these fire breaks to try to control wildfires down in Arizona. For most of us, these wildfires that come and go on the west coast, we pay little attention to them. They all kind of run together. But over the years, as I've listened to my brother tell tales of what happened on there, I'm reminded of a fire that took place in 2013 in Arizona. And this particular fire had the entire nation, or much of the nation, captivated because in this fire, there were 19 young men who passed away, which was the greatest loss of firefighters since 9-11. Now, it took place in a town called Yarnell, Arizona. Yarnell, in this particular area, it was very uh, dry. There had been drought for many, many years, and there had not been a fire there since 1966, so it was thick with foliage. As many of these fires happened, it was just a lightning strike that started what was seemingly just going to be a small hill fire that was going to be easily contained. Well, the winds picked up, and the next thing they know it was growing and growing towards some of the communities around by. Well, a team of what they call hot shots... And that's exactly what they are. These are the crew that go to the edges of the fire that work to put these out were called in. In this particular occasion, the Granite Mountain Hotshots were called in to work on this particular fire. Well, on arriving, 
they went through normal protocol. And they said that you wouldn't, you put do this, but if this happens, this is trigger point number one. And when trigger point number one happens, when the fire reaches here, you need to begin to move back. And then they had another trigger point number two. And they had another trigger point number three. And at each one of these trigger points, this 20-man crew was to move further and further into safety. They said there will be one hour in between one trigger point to the next. At 4.15 p.m., the first trigger point was hit, and this crew began to move towards their first safety zone. Eight minutes later, the second trigger point had been tripped. These men started to make their way towards their safety zone at zone three just to realize that the fire had um, taken a turn and that that was actually cut off. The leader of that group looked, and on, on all three sides of him, there was boulder-strewn uh, just edges that he, they were not going to be get, able to get out of this. And coming their way was this fire, moving faster than he could have ever imagined. He began to yell at them to get their gear, so they started to get their gear and to create a surface. What happens is moments you begin to cut everything around you and you throw it around to create a circle of dirt, essentially hoping that the flames will go around you. A couple minutes later, he realized that there was no hope to begin to make any more. And they heard words that they dreaded hearing, deploy, deploy, deploy. And what that meant was these men reached in the back of their bags and they grabbed what would look like to us an aluminum foil sleeping bag. They unzipped it and they just covered over, put that foil over their bodies and hoped that the heat from the coming flames that it would be protected from that. They say when these fires come up like that, it sounds like a train is coming towards you. This particular uh, fire, they estimated that the flames were 70 feet long, reaching temperatures of 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Human beings can take two, maybe three breaths at 300 degrees Fahrenheit air. When that fire came over them, everyone expected the worst. A helicopter came over. Granite Mountain, Granite Mountain, are you there? Are you there? Are you there? With little to no response, well, no response. Eventually, a helicopter came down and found all 19 of these men, just the remains of them from this particular fire. So I was thinking about that moment of what it must have been like to have boulders all around you and then to pull out what was essentially a piece of aluminum foil they would have had to have known that this is not going to protect me at this moment. I think the same would have been true for the Israelites in some ways. As they stood at the edge and they're walking into what they would know to be a stronger nation, a nation that had the fortified cities, a nation that would have had the better weaponry, a nation that had not been wondering as they were about to be called into battle, certainly they would have asked themselves the question, are we safe? We have God's promises that he'll be with us, but are we safe and secure? Well, the Lord knows the weakness of man's heart. In the Old Testament, he gives us stories, stories to answer this question. And that's what he's done in chapter 2 tonight. You really, if you read Joshua 1, you could pick right up at Joshua 3. There's no break in the action. 
But it's as if this story is cut and paste to say, I need to remind my people of a particular truth. So it gives us a story of two spies and a prostitute. It begins with an undercover mission in the city of Jericho. The spies walk in, and at this particular time, we know that Jericho is a fortified city. It was gated and guarded. We also hear from Rahab's testimony that there was a buzz in the air that this God, Yahweh, has a particular people and that he might be and he is on the move. So to be an unfamiliar man, to be walking into this city, they would have quickly have wanted to get out of the public eye. It's actually a clever decision to walk into Rahab's tavern or inn or brothel because it's there that anonymity is fine very few questions are asked access is easy and I would imagine it's a place where information could be acquired as people come in and out of there as to what people are thinking along the way it's interesting right after this it says that the king finds out and he sends a messenger over Right after that, Rahab tells a lie about her knowing about where these men are. You read through that section, and if you're reading carefully, you just want to raise your hands. I've got some questions. Just first of all, practical questions. How did, how did the king find out? What happened? Who did he send over? How many did he send over? Oh, but there's, there's much bigger questions than that, aren't there? What about ethical questions? I mean, Rahab is a woman of faith. Her name appears in genealogies, book of Hebrews. She lied. Is it okay to lie? When exactly is it okay to lie? And it's not that those questions are not important. It's just what, not what the author was trying to communicate. It wasn't the main point of what he wanted you to see. In fact, when you read through verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, they, they read... They're clumsy, they're fast, and there's all this information coming in you. It's as if the author is just saying, I, I just need to get this information out to get to the next part. And I'm going to slow down right there. One author said it this way. It's tragic when people snag their pants on the nail of Rahab's lie and quibble endlessly about the matter and miss the point of this entire Narrative. If you read commentaries, there's points that will come to this verse, and it will be six pages of understanding the ethical issues of when it's okay. And those are good things to think about. It's not that it's not, but that's not the intent, what the author wants you to understand. So he pushes you forward. And there's two clues in this first section that I think are helpful to understand where the author is wanting to go with it. The first clue has to do with these stalks of flax. Do you remember the, the, the two spies go on top of the roof and they are hidden underneath these stalks of flax. When I read that, my eyes just run right over that and I think, well, I guess stalks of flax were cultivated during that particular time. Maybe they were used for food, maybe some super protein food, I have no idea. Maybe they're used for, to make brooms out of or whatever they might be. But the original audience who would have read that, there were stalks of flax on the roof that would have seemed a bit unusual to them. 
It's not that stalks of flax weren't cultivated. They just weren't cultivated in this particular time period. So that would have been somewhat surprising to them. Perhaps it'd be something like this. A modern way of saying that would be that she took the spies up on top of the roof and she hid them beneath uh, her planted pot of kudzu that she was growing on top of her roof. Now, if we were to read that, we were like, kudzu? Nobody really puts kudzu in a planter and grows it like that way. So we'd ask ourselves a question. That would be, it's seeming perhaps an act of providence. It's unusual that that would be there, that there's someone setting this up in some way to care and to protect them. But even more so, there's something interesting at the end of verse 7. And it says right at the very end that right as the pursuers left, they said that the gate was shut. Now, that was a detail. It didn't need to be there to, to engage the story, but it was placed there. It was placed there for a reason. In Old Testament narrative, this would be the equivalent of, you know how in horror movies when the woman or man is walking down the dark hallway, if you just turn the volume down, it's not that scary. But it's when you turn the volume of, ooh, and you're just nervous, you're at the edge of your seat. By adding that detail there, it's a way of saying, and these two spies were in bad shape. Because the only way to get out of the city was through the gate that was then shut behind you. It's setting you up to say, what do you think is going to become of them? What's going to happen to these two who are now behind the latched gate? There would have been fear in them that night to hear that gate close. Lord... You've given us a promise. But we're in a bind here. At this particular moment, we don't know how you're going to get us out of this. I just was thinking through some conversations I've had, members in this church and in the community this past month. People in a bind. People who are caught in between the promises of God and some of the problems that they're facing. I was talking to a high school student who's about to graduate and one particular school was the one that they wanted to get into. And there have been several students around them and as kids know, they just know what grades people have and scores people have. And this person knew that there are several people who have already been accepted and their grades and numbers were better. You can trust the Lord those particular moments. I think of covenant children of varying ages in this church who for varying reasons are battling depression. They don't want to be in this space. They understand the promises of God. And yet they're Paralyzed, saying, Lord, where are you in the midst of this? Think of marriages where there's either emotional separation, physical separation, and there just does not seem to be a bridge that can be built to repair where certain individuals are.
Lord, can we trust you right now? What about our children? Can we trust you with that? Think of a parent whose child's incarcerated. Each time there's a baptism, and we mention this idea of God's promises, His covenant promises. You have to sit there and ask, Lord, where are you? Are those promises true for my family as well? This is what this text is wanting you to get to. This point where when life, when you look at life, there's a latched gate at this point. And then the text transitions. It answers the question, who in fact is secure? That's what happens at the end of verse 7. It's pushing you to that. We move to the story of this unlikely convert, Rahab, of course. This is a long list of liabilities, honestly. Two that come most readily to mind. First, she was an Amorite. This group was one of many peoples who occupied Canaan. The standard list includes Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Amorites, Girgashites, Jebusites, as one pastor told me, and the Mosquito Bites. <laughs> but there was one that was identified as the worst. Genesis 15 is the Amorites, and it puts her in that clan. Not only was she part of that clan, she was a prostitute. If you read enough, some commentaries, they'll try to make this sound a little bit better, thinking that she was perhaps served in the temple, but without question, the text paints this woman, portrays her as a woman of ill reputation from the worst clan and one who's the most unlikely person to life to be changed. Yet that's exactly what happens. You see it in verse 10, 11, and then 12. There's three events that happen that help us understand that Rahab, of all people, was converted. Verse 10, first she heard. She says, for now we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for when you came out of Egypt. This is the most natural way, the beginnings of one coming to faith, isn't it? Hearing of what the Lord has done. But it wasn't just hearing that happened in her life. The second thing, it was her heart. She not only believed that things had taken place, but she had a conviction for them to be true. There's a verse, and when I read it, the first time I read it when I was preparing for this text, it just stood out to me. And it's there in verse 11, it says, For the Lord your God is in heaven above and on earth below. It just sounded like there was a lot more to that particular idea than what the text initially represented. That phrase only appears prior to this in the Old Testament three times. And every time that it appears prior to this, it was a message of exclusivity. So it says something like, you are the God in heavens and earth, and heavens above and earth below, and there is no other God. That was what her statement was at that particular time. Even in the word Lord there, that'll be all caps in yours, it was his personal name for Yahweh. 
This was a decision. Not, not only have I heard what you have done, I believe in my heart who you say you are. To hold that particular truth, she was rejecting all the other gods that would have been available to her as, uh, as living in Canaan. And then finally, she cries out for help in verses 12 through 14. Some of the phrases that are given there, show me kindness, spare the lives of my family, save us from death. A lot of words go, I've been written about Rahab. I think a lot of the struggle is just the unworthy nature of this woman and the lies that she told. But the point of this entire text, the point of Scripture, is that the mercy of God comes to those who are unworthy. Going back now to the wildfire story, I mentioned that there were 20 men on this particular crew. 19 passed away, but there was one lone survivor, and his name was Brendan McDonough. They called him Donut. And from an early age, he dreamed of becoming a firefighter, but through middle school and high school, he lost his way. Alcohol and drugs became his uh, hobby that grew more into an addiction, went off to college, flunked out, came back from school, got back into more drugs. Drugs were escalating, and at the same, same week that he was taken to jail, he found out that his girlfriend was pregnant. Got out of jail, and he decided that he wanted to make good on his life, and he went to this Hot Shots, which would have been just a, a, a higher level of um, firefighting that he had neither the, the physical strength to do it, and his body was currently going through detox, so there was really no way that he was going to be able to prepare himself. But he drove there, and he, they said, hey, look, I, I, you have no reason to hire me. I'm a felon, actually. But if you give me a chance, I will make you proud. And a man by the name of Eric Marsh gave him an opportunity. And it was there that he began training to be part of this crew. Well, because he was part of the newer to that crew, the 19 men who were in the uh, fire, in the fire, they typically put out somebody who's a scout who just looks from a distance to try to determine where the fire is going to be going. And the decision that Eric Marsh made to put Brendan McDonough as the scout that day actually saved his life because he was not right there. Well, after he returned and was safe and he found out that these 19 of his friends had passed away, he really struggled with the guilt that survivor guilt that we often hear of. And he, went, he did what he always did in these moments. He turned back to alcohol and began drinking again and just to um, help medicate himself and to ease his pain. It was there that he began talking to a pastor. And through these conversations with the pastor, eventually he said, the reason that there's no way that I can ever believe in what you believe or become who you want me to become is because of my past. He said there were 19 men that day, all of whom were better than I. 19 men that day, all of whom should be living. I should have been the first to die. And when I get my life back in order, well, then maybe I'll come and hear about this faith you're describing. This was an interview uh, later on. He said, I've done some things. I'm not proud of my past. I feel like I've got to get my life in order before I'm ready to commit to being a follower of Jesus. And he goes, I think you think you got it all wrong, man, said the pastor. Jesus came for the broken. He came for the lost. He left the 99 for the one. 
And at that particular moment, for the first time, Brandon realized that the Lord comes for those not who have the resources, but who no longer have the resources. Brandon McDonough, he heard the gospel. His heart was changed. At that moment, he cried out for help. He now tells his story. He tells his story as a Christian. That unworthy person, such as himself, is now safe and secure. There's one final question that this text, I think, answers. It actually slows down in this conversation, verses 8 through 14. But it leaves you asking the question, well, what becomes of those who take refuge in Christ? What happens to them? So we go back to our text now, verse 15. And remember, we were left with the gate shutting, and we're asking ourselves, what of these spies? What's going to happen to them? And in verse 15, we see that these spies were let down by a rope. The exact structure of her house is a bit unknown. It's thought that in these fortified cities, they would build this outer wall, and sometimes they would put a double wall there. They would then fill it up with rabble of various uh, types and to strengthen it. But at some point, they'd begin to build homes. I, I guess like a high-rise apartment, you could almost see them. So she lived in what's called a casement, they thought. And in that casement, there would have been a window that would have had a rope that would have gone down. Yeah, and maybe everybody had a rope. I don't know. But it makes sense to me that if you're in the line of business that she was in, that perhaps this wasn't the first man that went down on a rope. Whatever the case may be, God provided deliverance for these two men. That's what the story wants you to see right there. Well, what about Rahab? What about this one who's now recently come to faith? Is she too secure? And the text outlines that as well. And it says there's two things are going to have to happen. You'll need to hang a scarlet cord outside your window. And then you collect your family. And you put them beneath one roof. And when those two conditions are met, you'll be saved. This little scarlet cord has, of course, attracted a lot of attention to Bible students. The cord itself, it's clear what it represents. The cord is the setting apart, that that's the home to which we're to save. It's the color of the cord that has a lot of attention has been brought to it over the years. Is it red signifying the blood of Christ? And it's not that typologies aren't present in the Old Testament, but most would say that, that the scarlet cord, the importance of that is that it was scarlet, and that's about it that there's not the significance of it pointing to Christ, primarily because it's not even mentioned in the New Testament. But what it certainly does point to, backwards to, I would argue, is back to the Passover. At this moment that God set a people apart, in a time they would have put blood over 
their doorposts. And in doing so, it was saying that those who are covered by the blood of another, they are the ones who are safe and secure. That's the connection that's being brought here at this particular moment. So in these final moments, God is saying that to those who were mine, these two spies and this prostitute named Rahab, even in the most difficult of circumstances, I will be their God, their rock of ages, and I'll protect them. One final story that I came across recently it was a story of Charles Mully. It goes by Mully by short. It's on Netflix. It's this remarkable story of a six-year-old boy who was orphaned in Kenya. Literally, he woke up one day, and his mother and father and two brothers were gone. He was left in what appeared to be a, a hut of some type. And he made his way back into the city, to Nairobi. Got one job that led to the next job. And it is a story of just remarkable success. Well, along that journey, he actually uh, was mentored by a pastor who helped him believe that God did have a plan for his life. Well... Working out God's plan in his life, he continued to become more and more successful. As his success began to grow, at one point he decided that he began to have a burden for the other orphans that were in the city. So I, uh, he began to take in a couple of orphans into his own home. He maybe had six to eight children of his own. And then he would go out in the city, he would come back with a child over his shoulder. And his wife and family began to care for them. And this began to grow until they had outsized their house. He said, we need to move. They moved back to the village where he was from originally because they needed more space. And he would go into the city. He'd find these children literally living beneath buildings who'd just been left. And he would bring them back. And he got back to his village. And eventually he outgrew that. He pushed his fame a little bit further to the barren East African tundra. When he was driving there, it was just all dry. No trees, and more importantly, no water. I don't know how many family members, it was hundreds at this particular point, to not have water, driving four hours one way to get water for this group. He realized the necessity of water, and he brought in one of these big rigs to drill down to find oil. They came out there on two or three separate occasions and no water was found. Began crying out to the Lord, Lord, I sense that this, you've called me to this. What are we going to do? Now, I'll let you watch the film to see how it was provided. But eventually, a few men were out digging with sticks and rods. And they came across a rock bed. They hit it one more time. And water started to come out. So much water that they eventually had to create a bridge in his little community for the river that had been formed. So much water that he then began to use it to feed up to 10,000 people in his family for sustainable gardening. 
They began to use that water, and they began to plant trees back in 2004. Since 2004, they've planted 1.5 billion trees. They've planted so many trees, they've created a little microclimate in that area. You know, trees will eventually transpire, and they'll release water, and that particular part of Africa now has received now more rainfall than it did when they were there. And I left that movie, and I just thought to myself, this idea of water, this idea of this unlimited resource that continues to this very day to absolutely transform and change that community. And what God is saying to us is that my love for you, my promises to you are an unlimited resource to you. That in moments of hardship, that in moments when you cannot see forward, when the gate latch has just been closed, those who are mine, those whose hearts have been changed and who cry out for help, you can look to me and I am the rock of ages and unlimited resource of care and protection for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us stories. Stories where you redeemed the life of prostitutes. Stories where you drop ropes out of fortified cities. Stories where you place stalks of flax onto a building. Stories that remind us of your promises in our life. Father, as I look out into this congregation tonight, I know that there are many who would have good reason in our own weakness to doubt you, to not be able to see the promises that are theirs in Christ. And I pray that tonight, that this chapter that you just inserted into this book for the reason that we might know that you are a rock, would that be of help tonight? And would that bring encouragement as we begin this week? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.